This is a crowd podcast. Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a broadcaster and fertility coach, and I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. We'll be your trusted guides, chatting each week with experts and people just like you to let you know you're not alone. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fertility Podcast, where we are so refreshed. The pair of us have had a break. We have so needed and... Oddly, we've both been in Cornwall, haven't we? Well, I've been wanting to go to Cornwall for I don't know how many years. I haven't been since I was a kid. And then obviously with all that's gone on and it's such a long way from me from Manchester, but Mm. some friends were going and they had a campsite pitch rather than me trying to sort out where I was going. So we did it. We did it. And then when I was telling you and you're like, I'm going to Cornwall. Yeah. So that was a bit of a joyful thing to meet up in Cornwall. It was a really, really joyful thing, especially as the day before I'd driven down three teenagers and drop them in were they, were they as smelly as when you picked um oliver up from the airport? oliver up from the airport no <laughs> so driving them down they weren't smelly i dropped them off at new key festival Boardmasters festival then went to falmouth to, to stay with my sister so very lucky that i got my sister just there um however picking them up you can imagine three very tired very smelly post-festival boys who are probably still hung over and if archie has COVID so that we can't go on holiday to Crete, he will be in a lot of trouble. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay, fingers crossed yeah. that that doesn't happen. Well, on my route back, I took Phoenix to the West End to go uh, and see Joseph, well, the musical, because it's my guilty pleasure and it's Phoenix's now <sighs> guilty pleasure. And um, we had a bit of civil, I mean, I didn't tell him till we got there and he was, so, I got such mummy points. I mean, I'm just going to brag. So that's a long, so a long trip from Cornwall then to London. Yeah. To back then to Manchester. Yeah. That's quite a trip, isn't it? Well, I wanted to get the West End bit in and it was either, I, I, I it was the same distance to just go back to Manchester or over to London. Mm, so I just figured it, I'd do it. Worth it. Um, went and saw the grandma. Yeah. Lot of driving, but hey ho. All worth it, and it's done, and now I'm home. And here we are. We've been away, and we're back. And um, rest assured, we haven't stopped publishing because we're so dedicated to this journey that we're on. We shared with you the Drugs Teach in our last episode. We're now talking about egg collection and embryo transfer, which, again, is another big question. So unknown. There's a lot of conversations that you'll see online, whether or not you should look online. Personally, I didn't. What do you say to your um, your clients, Kate, when they are heading towards a collection and, and they're looking at what other people share? I think it's fine to look online, but look at reputable accounts or or places. Just be careful that you don't start going down a bit of a rabbit hole and not being able to get out of that because you're looking at things that perhaps aren't so great to look at or are there to, to, to scare you, I guess. Um, and there's nothing to be scared of either. I just want to put that out there. Um, but I think there is that, that worry. So just look at the, the right accounts or the right information. Often the clinics will actually give you quite a lot of information about um, egg collection. They may even have some videos or some other resources that they can guide you to. So perhaps look at that stuff rather than going down that rabbit hole. Well, 
you can just sit back and relax because what we've done is we've asked one of our um, friendly fertility experts, Alpresh Doshi from IVF London, to talk through the process and explain the kind of things that you can be thinking about. And obviously, if you've got more questions once you've listened, please don't hold back from asking your clinic. Here's what Alpesh has to say about the whole process. Welcome to another episode of the Fertility Podcast. I'm flying solo because Kate is having a well-deserved break, but I'm delighted to welcome back a previous guest of the podcast, Alpesh Doshi, who is the clinical director and consultant embryologist and founder of IVF London. Now, I have spoken with Alpesh before, and I will put a link in the show notes to hear more about his decision to leave the lab although I know he still spends time in the lab, but to go and set up on his own, because I think it's a really fascinating story. And if you've had any conversations on on forums about what happens when you have your treatment, everybody always talks about get on the good side of the embryologist. And I think it's always so fascinating to talk to embryologists. So Alpesh, welcome to the Fertility Podcast. Welcome back, I should say. Thank you so much, Natalie. Absolutely a pleasure to be here again. So this episode is about what people need to know ahead of egg collection and then embryo transfer. And we've been mapping out the journey that people are on in terms of trying to conceive. And if they haven't been able to conceive naturally and have been guided into the fertility clinic, then we're explaining the process because it's so overwhelming. So what's happening in the run up to egg collection and people are on their protocol? Sure. So as you know, when a, um, a lady is taking hormones for stimulating the ovaries to produce the follicles, which hopefully will have the eggs, it's very important that the patient's expectations are met or certainly that the patients are coached during this stimulation phase about what follicles mean, what the sizes of the follicles mean, what percentage of the follicles will result in an egg what are the different stages that the egg can be at in terms of maturation? So in terms of the run-up to the egg collection, it is very important that patients are informed of what the next steps are going to be, such as at every stage of the ultrasound scan, it's important that the patient is um, informed on how many follicles they have in each ovary, what are the sizes of the follicles, how many follicles are they expecting to grow further on? And certainly by their last scan, when they are ready to take the trigger injection, a more detailed conversation needs to happen around how many eggs we are likely to expect. It is important to, for the patients to know that we typically get 80% uh, of the follicles that actually result in eggs. And that is not all the follicles, but typically uh, follicles that are over 14 millimeters in diameter. Because a lot of the disappointment sometimes comes because patients are not really um, able to understand what the numbers mean, how to interpret numbers. They almost assume that I've, if they've got 15 follicles, that means 15 eggs. No, it doesn't. Thank you so much for explaining it like that, because I think what happens in this process when people may have come away from a scan and then they go on social media and then they ask other people questions and everybody is so different and we're always trying to reiterate how different we are and how bespoke each protocol is to that individual and how you respond and all that kind of stuff so when somebody is fretting um we always say there's no stupid questions do you welcome that that questioning i mean we want people to try and not stress out um but we, we want people to feel you know from their mental health point of view that that they're in an okay place so 
do you welcome those questions and what else do you advise people can do to help look after their mind as well as their body whilst they're going through this? Absolutely, Natalie. One of the principal aims at IVF London is that we constantly keep the patient informed, engaged and educated when it comes to the next steps, just so that we can manage their expectations better, just so that when we're having that next conversation, it's not necessarily a big surprise if there is a turn to events because we actually cover all eventualities right from the time that the patient is ready to have the trigger injection, which matures the eggs. We would exactly explain what the next process is going to be, i.e. on the day of egg collection, how long they're going to spend here, um, how many hours they will be out of action, so to speak, um, what to expect in terms of egg numbers, what does egg maturation mean? So all this is all the, all this discussion is very very important. And yes, at IVF London, we we empower ourselves and our patients to make sure that there is a continuous dialogue, just so that the patient doesn't feel that uh, they're not in control of 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 the situation. More so from the mental perspective of not understanding what the next steps are, because that can leave the patient very vulnerable, I feel. So empowering them with information at all the time in bite sizes really makes a world of difference in terms of pacifying them at each stage. And so in terms of the procedure for egg collection, how long does it take and also does it hurt? So typically it can take anything from 15 minutes to 45 minutes, depending on the number of follicles that the patient has. Ideally, what happens in an egg collection, a need, uh, the patient is obviously asleep. Very few clinics actually do egg collections under local anesthetic. Most of them... Yeah. That's how I had it. Oh, really? Oh, my God. Yep. Well, most of the patients are deeply sedated, so you will be asleep. You wouldn't remember anything. A needle is passed on either side of the vaginal wall, and the follicles are aspirated by the use of an ultrasound. The aspiration of the follicles is pretty quick. The doctor just um, pricks each follicle with the aid of the ultrasound, drains the follicle, the drained fluid goes into the lab. The embryologist identifies the egg if there's one, separates the egg and keeps them in the incubator. So one by one, all the follicles are drained. Once the procedure is done, as I said, on average about half an hour, the patient is allowed to wake up. Um, if there's any kind of bleeding, minute bleeding that is controlled, um, patient wakes up, has something to drink because, of course, they've had anesthetic. So they're nil by mouth from the night before. Um, we make sure that the patient is fully awake, they're, they're past um, uh, water, and um, they're good to go home. Typically, it takes about two to three hours of them being in the clinic before they go away. Uh, in terms of pain, mild discomfort, very, very mild discomfort, but easily manageable with a bit of paracetamol. Usually, patients are absolutely... Uh, good to run the following day. You don't mean literally run, you just mean back on their feet. No, I, I, I literally, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I don't mean literally yeah. run, but good to go on their daily. Activity. And in terms of what's a good number, I know it's so dependent. I mean, one can be a good number, can't it? But when people might feel disappointed about the number, especially if they've been on social media, as we've said, and they've had conversations, or maybe they've had previous cycles and they're coming back and they're comparing to what's happened before, what do you do to help people with that number? With, with dealing with that number? So Natalie, what I find really important in this journey 
is that patients don't necessarily need to fixate themselves with this number because it's not about numbers. For example, the number could be number of eggs or it could be the number of embryos. And we all know that the journey from the egg to the embryo is quite a funnel. The numbers do come down. So I think it's very important for couples and patients to focus on the embryo number rather than the egg number. Trust me, uh, and you must have heard about this all the time, some women start off with 20 eggs and don't even have one embryo at the end of it at the blastocyst stage. Or for example, clinics that are doing a lot of pre-implantation genetic testing, the numbers change totally because having five blastocysts at the age of 40, 41 may mean nothing compared to when you look at the numbers in terms of euploid or genetically healthy embryos. So this number ultimately really needs to be funneled into the chance of success rather than being fixated on the number of eggs or the number fertilized or the number of day three embryos or even the number of blastocysts because the measure of success is actually taking a baby home. Yep, I couldn't agree with you more. But if people are hearing those those terms for the first time because they're coming to this you know due to start treatment so once the embryologist has those precious uh, eggs just quickly explain the process if, if you can because obviously it's, it's very involved of what happens next and when when people can expect to hear from the from the clinic in terms of how things are doing so the communication after the egg collection is daily at least from the embryologist front. The embryologist has a chat with the patient straight after the egg collection when they were woken up to let them know how many eggs have been collected to explain what we're going to do that afternoon, i.e. whether we're doing conventional IVF or ICSI to fertilize the eggs. The next morning, we'll call the patient and let them know how many eggs were mature, how many fertilized. Um, again, give them an indication of is this a normal benchmark or not? Because many patients need to know, is this normal or and do I have bad news? Uh, then we call them again on day three of embryonic development to give them a summative assessment of how the embryos are developing. And then finally at the blastocyst stage on day five, when we'll exactly let them know how many of them have developed uh, to the blastocyst. But this dialogue is quite frequent from the lab to the patient. And I will add that I will put links to other conversations I've had with uh, different embryologists about that point in the lab because I've just asked Alpesh to explain it quite briefly, giving you an overview. And we have talked in the past on the podcast about blastocyst and what that means. So you're going back for your embryo transfer. Just explain a bit about what happens. And also I'd, I'd love to hear your kind of best advice for after your embryo transfer, whether you agree with any of the myths of uh, McDonald's fries, that kind of thing. Oh, <laughs> right, there's so many old wise tales about um, what yeah. to do after an embryo transfer. But let's focus on what happens on the day of embryo transfer. So if the patient does not have any complicated history of having a difficult embryo transfer, they will not need any kind of sedation or anesthetic for the embryo transfer. They are fully awake. Uh, it's like a smear test in many ways. Um, the patient comes with a full bladder. We will, what we will do is we will just clean the vaginal and the cervix really well. And then we will pass a very thin catheter or a tube, a sterile tube into the cervix, visualize that tube with the ultrasound to make sure that we're in the right place. 
and then the embryologist will load another finer catheter with the embryos, pass it through the already positioned catheter by the consultant or the gynecologist, and then the inner catheter is visualized on the ultrasound. And once the gynecologist is happy with the positioning, they will release the embryos in the middle of the uterus. The procedure does uh, only takes about 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, patients are maximum for half an hour in the clinic and then they go home. Um, after that, it's literally taking your hormones, taking your injections up to the whole two week wait, which again, we're not gonna discuss because I, I know you've got dedicated episodes on the two week wait. But um, you know, it's just managing their, their stress levels, their anxiety and talking to us as much as they like, just whatever reassurance we can give them between the embryo transfer and the pregnancy test is always something which calms patients down. It's what we say as well when I especially see kind of stress conversations about dealing with the two-week way is to call your clinic. And I think that kind of neuroses that comes with infertility is kind of a given. Um, and so, like you're saying, you're perfectly entitled to to ask questions. And, and one thing that, that we did was we went away for a couple of days, which was really lovely. And I, I think giving yourself something to look forward to in the process because obviously we don't know the outcome and if the outcome isn't what you'd hoped and you've been away for a couple of days then that's a nice way to spend your time as well isn't it so I think we have to really be be kind to ourselves during because it's it's a huge thing and I think maybe when people around us don't quite understand it and we haven't had the support from people that don't really understand what fertility treatment is about it it's a huge emotional toll which we talk about all the time isn't it Absolutely. Not just between the patient and the clinic, but even between the couple, as you know, there is a lot of tension between a couple during fertility treatment or in the buildup to fertility treatment. Uh, you know, some of them, you know, generally attribute this as, as an unsaid blame game, etc., etc. So, you know, all these emotions really need to be kept at bay if uh, a couple are going to go through fertility treatment. And as I said, coaching is very, very important. Counseling is very important. Relationship management is extremely important during these trying and testing times. When when it comes to then the, the outcome, and if it's not been um, positive, I know that, again, I've seen conversations where people feel they've just been dropped by their clinic. And when you've had this period of time where you have been in close contact with a clinic to then feel like that, what advice do you give to people? And I know every clinic's different, but it does seem a common um, concern or complaint that we hear from patients, that they, they don't always feel that that support is there when they really need it. It's the most common thing that is heard in many clinics. And certainly that is one thing that I've tried to embed in the processes at IVF London, because we believe in this um, holistic and emotional uh, support. Um, perspective. So, for example, how do we manage these scenarios? As soon as the embryo transfer is done, we give the patient a call after a week, again, just to find out how the two-week wait is going for them. Um, if they had any kind of spotting or bleeding, etc., this is an opportunity to discuss it. And of course, patients can call us at any time. But so we, we call them one week after the transfer. And of course, we prefer to do the pregnancy tests in the clinic. So we call them for a blood test and we would anyway call them to give the results. So we 
give a lot of support in that call as well. And if it's a negative test, we will call them another week later after the negative test to see how they are. Uh, of course, encourage them to have their follow-up. Uh, I generally am present in a lot of the follow-ups so that patients get a more uh, holistic view of the clinical and the lab aspect altogether. Because the disappointment that comes with that is is just unpalpable, isn't it? And ultimately, yeah. we know the success rates are what, what they are, and it's so age-dependent and when people have had a failed cycle, maybe people are listening to this having had a failed cycle and they're going again. What would your last thought be when it comes to getting ready to try again, having had a failed cycle? Because you're not going to be able to forget that, are you, once you've been through it? Sure. I think uh, courage is very important. Emotional strength and resilience is the second thing that a couple should build up in their journey because they've been through it once they kind of know what to expect the second time round. Their uh, expectations are better managed. And most importantly, never fear from asking the questions. I prefer when my patients are interactive and I want them to ask me the questions because the moment they do, they feel empowered and in control. So second time around, never be scared of asking the relevant questions. There is nothing like a silly question. Everything is justified. When patients are paying, especially, not to say that this is dependent on whether it's paying or not paying, they deserve the explanations from your healthcare professionals. Yeah, thank you so much, Alpesh. I really put you through your paces there with my quick fire question round. Um, but thank you. I think you explained that so clearly and concisely. And I'm so I'm always so like delighted to hear the emphasis you put on the emotional support. And I know it's something really special and important to, to you and your clinic. So thank you for explaining that. And I'm sure this will have been very useful for our audience. Thank you so much, Natalie, for the opportunity and lovely to connect again. I love his focus on the whole holistic well-being aspect from a fertility clinic point of view I've always been really um, pleased about the emphasis that IVF London put on that emotional support that goes with the treatment because we do hear from you that sometimes you don't feel that you're guided and supported as well as you can be at the clinic hence coming to people like us for more support and communities that are online and Alpesh as you heard him say they're always really keen to kind of talk to you about your expectations because so many people put such emphasis on they numbers, really do they? and I, you know it's really interesting hearing him say that because when I'm talking to my patients it it is all about a numbers game originally that's what their focus is on and it's really it's really easy to kind of focus on that because it, it that's the step you're at at that point when you're doing a collection you want to know how many how many eggs you've got that's the biggest thing on your mind but actually it's it's, it doesn't really matter how many eggs you've got. What it's down to is the embryos. So how many embryos are you going to get? What's the quality of those embryos? And I can honestly say, once you've got your embryos, like you said, Nat, your new best friend is going to be your embryologist. They will be the person that you are keeping your phone clear for because they're going to be phoning you. They're going to be phoning you with updates, probably on day three and day five and maybe other updates too. Um, and they are going to be the people that you're not going to want to miss that call. If you've got somebody else who's phoning you, you're going to get cross with them because you need to keep that line free. So they are going to become your new best friend because it's all about the embryo quality 
and how many embryos you've got rather than eggs. So keep your focus on the embryos. Yeah, exactly. And as Alpesh said, and with him being an embryologist as well by kind of trade, it was really interesting hearing him him talk that through. So hopefully that's been useful for you. Before we let you go, we have some more expert advice from our resident expert, Dr. James Nicopolis. Ask the expert. 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 Right, this one is about endometriosis. Um, they would like to understand if they have a diagnosis of endometriosis, how this might tra- change the IVF drug protocol. And is there anything else that can be done to support trying to conceive naturally or pre-IVF if you have an endometriosis diagnosis? Okay, so there's kind of lots of aspects to this question, really. I think pre-IVF, clearly, you know, if you've had endometriosis diagnosed, you may or may not have also had your tubes tested at the same time. So if your tubes are blocked by virtue of any scarring of endometriosis, then you need IVF anyway, realistically. If the tubes are patent with endometriosis and you're ovulating, having endometriosis ablated or treated, there's a, if it's mild to moderate, there's a little bit of evidence that that can improve chances of getting pregnant naturally over the next six to 12 months. So having it treated um, surgically, if it's mild, um, there's a little bit of evidence of benefit. Once you've got to the point where you need IVF, there is no good evidence that treating endometriosis surgically improves IVF outcome. So the only reason to have sort of surgical treatment for endometriosis if you're having IVF is because the symptoms, you know, you're struggling with the symptoms and you need to improve those. Um, Equally, if you've got a, a cyst and endometrioma from endometriosis, again, no real evidence that removing a small endometrioma improves outcome potentially actually removing that may also remove some normal ovary with it which could impact on your response so again unless you've got significant symptoms or the ovaries aren't accessible probably not sensible to remove those Um, within IVF itself um, there was a little bit of data a while ago that suggested women with endometriosis may have a slower success rate compared to general controls of the same age with blocked tubes if you look at the big national databases HFEA the SART in America that hasn't really been shown um, more recently. So in the past, there was um, a study and some evidence that if you suppress endometriosis for a little while before you start IVF, you may improve the outcome. But that suppression is two or three months of nasal spray or injectable that switches off your own hormones and can make women feel pretty grotty. And at the same time, you're three or four months older. Um, so actually, it's not something that tends to be done. So, you know, routinely now, an endometriosis protocol is usually very similar to any other protocol, depending on age and age. Lots to take in there. Ask the expert. 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 So next week is our two week wait episode. And you might have already heard us mention that we really, really want to hear from you. You've got a little bit more time. We're going to give you two more days. So if you're listening to this on the day that this episode's come out, which is Monday the 16th of August, you've got until Tuesday the 17th of August to email info at the fertilitypodcast.com. And then we will send you the link to just record your thoughts on how you coped with the two-week wait because we're really keen to get as many of your thoughts as possible for this episode. My ideal is that this episode is all about you. It's a little bit of me and Kate, but mainly about you. Uh, um, yes, but could you leave it outside? I want a cup of tea. Thank you, darling. We need to...
Yeah, Natalie wants Natalie wants one arch. We interrupt. We interrupt this uh, very important podcast recording for a tea break. A tea break for Kate. Sorry about that, everybody. Um, as we were saying, uh, let us know your thoughts for the two week wait. Kate, you were saying some specific things that you're quite keen to hear, weren't you? Yeah. So I'd really like to hear how you feel in the first week as opposed to how you feel in the second week. So in the first week, do you feel, of the two-week wait, do you feel a bit more hopeful, a bit excited? And then in the second week, is that when all the anxieties and the doubts start to creep in? And is that when you're symptom checking like crazy? Because that seems to be the way that it often goes for ladies. So I'd love to hear your experiences on that. So that email is info at the fertilitypodcast.com. Put TWW in the subject, and then we'll send you back the link how you can upload your little voice message it's literally a really cool bit of software that we're using and you just have to talk at your computer um, and it's just a great way for us to collect your thoughts the other thing you can do is dm us on socials if you're out and about and you can't write that email down i'd prefer it if you do email just so we don't lose you in our um, our messages on social but you can and you can follow me at fertility Poddy and me at your fertility journey thank you as always for your support and until the next time Crowd Network, a place where you belong.